Welcome to She's Got Soul, Journey of the Modern Women podcast. I am your host, Coloma, psychologist, neuroscientist, primatologist, movement instructor, and mindfulness coach. A woman in her flow knows what she wants, feels empowered and free, and lives in the natural state of high vibration she was born to embody. This is what this show is about, a call to all women whose purpose is to express their creativity and sensuality, who are ready to experience life from a place of alignment and connectedness. Today's episode is about topics such as social justice and decolonization. We also reveal what yoga truly is and how that ancient tradition can be an essential component for trauma recovery. How its teachings can improve anyone's well-being and develop sensitivity around issues we might not be aware of. For those who are seeking to take better care of themselves and of the earth we live in, or for those who want to know what yoga beyond the mat is, you will really enjoy this conversation. With me I have Durga Dasi, an herbalist and trauma conscious student and teacher of yoga, asana, meditation, kirtan and knowledge. Blending Hindu philosophy with the ancestral wisdom of her indigenous Chickasaw and Choctaw nations heritage, Durga offers a unique approach to healing, utilizing intuitive spiritual guidance, somatic experience through guided meditation and counsel, and earth medicine. Having studied yoga in India and the States, she is an enrolled student of her Guruji, Swami Vajanananda Sarasvati at Ramakrishna Theological Seminary of Kalimandir. She's a faithful devotee of Sanatam Dharma and devotee of Durga Ma, while also following spiritual traditions of her ancestry. She lives on Tongva land. Hi, Durga. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Thanks. It's such an honor to be here with you, Coloma. <laughs> so fun to see you after all this time that we haven't seen each other. I know. <laughs> Without a mask. <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I would like to start talking about your personal journey towards who you are and what brought you to do what you do today. Oh, boy. So where do I begin with that? Um it's always interesting when I get asked this question. So I'm like, well, at what point? Because you know, I feel like our whole lives kind of lead up to to where we are. But I'll suffice it to say this: I um, I'm a I'm a survivor of childhood trauma, and that led me into a downward spiral in my adult life, which led me to a suicide attempt, which led me to yoga. Um, that's really where the the grace kind of kicks in, and where my journey sort of begins to bloom into what, what we see now. Um, so from there, I, I just noticed that when I was on the mat doing these postures and linking them to the breath, all of a sudden I felt connected to my body in a way that I hadn't before. I could feel my emotions in a way that wasn't overwhelming, right? I felt connected to myself in a way that I didn't know was possible, more or less safe. So then I went into teacher training, um, with the intention of wanting to share this gift of yoga with other trauma survivors. Teacher training introduced me to Kirtan and the Hindu pantheon. And then I started going to Kali Mandir and went to India and, um, and all of these things and um, started getting more in touch with my ancestry, which is indigenous. I'm Chickasaw Choctaw. Um, so, so now I have this fusion of all these beautiful Hindu and yogic practices with the indigenous practices. And it's, 
like a Dorgadasi soup of spirituality <laughs> and practices, I guess, but, um, but it, it's good. And the journey is far from being over, you know, we'll, we'll see what Ma has in store next, but that's sort of the, the very Cliff's Notes condensed version <laughs> yeah, of how I got here. <laughs> it's interesting because everybody I talk to, they start with obviously some uh, traumatic event or experience mm-hmm. and then yoga. And from yoga yeah. though, everything happens. Yes. It's amazing how powerful yoga is. And, you know, we can argue over the origins of yoga and where it came from and who it belongs to and all of these things. And we definitely want to pay respects to India who gave us this gift and everything. But I think the bottom line is just that it's, it's a life changing heart healing practice that, I mean, I tried all kinds of trauma processing modalities with different therapies. And I, I'm, I'm an advocate for all of them, but nothing put me in tune with my body and my willingness and ability to heal like yoga did. Right. Particularly your yoga teachings are special or are different. <laughs> they are that, different. <laughs> yeah, you don't cue postures, but rather invite students into them, allowing them to, to connect with their bodies in their own way and learn to trust them as a safe space, right? And did you ever teach a normal yoga, let's say? When did, <laughs> why, did, why did you choose to start teaching this way? What was the, when did you shift? Um, I think after I did my, you know, standard 200-hour teacher training, I did an, um, a trauma teacher training with Hala Corey. And then I did some additional work with um, Off the Mat Into the World, Sean Korn and Suzanne Steerling and a whole bunch of other teachers. But Hala is kind of my hero when it comes to yoga. And she's the one that she invited me into a space of yoga. Um, it is hard when even still to this day, if I go to a yoga class and I feel like they're demanding I do this and this and this and I can't keep up with the breath and I start to feel... Uh, that activation of the nervous system or what we could call being triggered. Um, And with Hala, everything is just an open invitation. And what do you feel? You know, it's about not getting yoga done, but about experiencing this relationship with yoga in the body, in the heart and in the mind and bringing all of that into unity. And then in that, that's where I find God or my idea of great spirit, the great mother, right? Um, So I definitely um, have her to credit for that. (laughs) So thank Mm -hmm. you, Hala. (laughs) <laughs> Sometimes we go to, to yoga class and we end up being more stressed rather than if we don't go there because it's all demanding, mm-hmm. as you said. And you've seen benefits uh, in students when teaching them this way. Absolutely. And I have some students that, you know, they'll come to a class and I always invite them to, you know, take Balasana, take child's pose anytime you want to. Some of them will take that first child's pose and they don't come back out of it until it's time for Shavasana. And I love that. I love, I can tell a student is comfortable in my class and feels safer in my class when, when they're able to do that, to go into Balasana or to try that headstand when I didn't cue it or what, you know, whatever it looks like for them being able to explore, um, not feeling the need to prove anything. It's so important to me when I see them resting and nourishing and doing what's best, because that's how we take yoga off the mat and into the world with us, right? If we can make these choices that honor us on the mat and start to listen to our bodies and get in touch with that felt sense on the mat, then we're so much more likely to take it off the mat. And for a trauma survivor, especially when we're talking about sexual trauma, you know, obviously consent wasn't a thing and and we didn't have autonomy over our bodies. And so giving them that authority back, giving them the ability to trust and listen and say yes to 
what their intuition is saying, what their bodies are asking for on the mat allows them. And then we go into kind of a trauma prevention mode. They're going to keep themselves a little bit safer because they'll know how to listen to their intuitions off the mat as well. And in everyday life, you know, everything from relationships to getting a job to buying a car to what, whatever that looks like, taking that personal time, self-care comes in so many forms, but we've got to be able to listen to that intuition. And that's what yoga and inviting people into the space of yoga, rather than if I'm dictating their practice, they don't get to develop that relationship. So that invitation invites them into an inner relationship, which is kind of, to my understanding, what yoga is actually about, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, being able to do all the fun stuff is icing on the vegan cake, as we would say, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all self-awareness and yes. for at listeners, according to the yoga tradition, there are several systems translates in our daily interactions and offer them um, to whatever form of God we believe in, being it Krishna, uh, Christ, Allah, Hanuman, the Divine Mother, right? And yes. th this divine um, love is different from human love in the sense that the latter tends to be grasping or self-serving, whereas divine love is giving and selfless. So that is a part of what yoga teaches as well, not only mm -hmm. like this self-love, self but this divine love, right? And by cultivating and deepening the values of this ancient philosophy, such as non-harming, truthfulness, purity, humility, in our worldly relationships, we become a reflection of, of the divine, right? And, and this way of living is what allows us to expand our social responsibility as well. Yeah. By this, I mean having a greater awareness around the importance of making environmentally in our daily lives, accompanied by having a broader vision on social justice and how each of our decisions have an impact on our community and on other communities, on the land we live in and yeah. on the lands we don't live in. Taking into right. consideration we are all alive in the era of globalization. So I've been talking a lot. So what I <laughs> I what I was going. I is, love it. Please continue. <laughs> You're making my job much easier today. <laughs> See, what's your point of view on that? What are some practices people can do to show up for the earth, uh, for mm. unfavored communities, and to live a less absorbed life in general? Right. So a couple of things kind of come to mind with this question. One is the practice of ahimsa non-harming but we have to look at it as it's not just a practice of i'm i'm not going i'm not going to litter i'm not harming right because i'm not going to throw my trash out the door but non-harming takes on many forms non-harming is being proactive in doing what whatever the opposite of harm is so what's the opposite of harm love right you know I'm, i mean I'm not going to harm her because she's the, this little kitty right here. I'm not going to harm her because she's the love of my life, right? So I'm not going to just look for the bare minimum as to not hurt her. I'm going to look for ways to love her and to nurture her. And we need to be that way with both Mother Earth um, and also with the people and the other beings that inhabit Mother Earth, which also goes to the beings that were on this land, especially in America and in Canada, anything that we call Turtle Island or any of the other colonized areas in the Middle East and, and things like this, there were generations and generations of people and families and children that lived there long before the, the settlers came in, right? 
the colonial settlers came in. So Ahimsa also includes land acknowledgements, acknowledging the people whose land we are living on, the, the rightful stewards of the land that we're on, and learning how to, um, how to honor them in a way that goes beyond words. So if we have tribal elders, maybe talking to them, what are some of the ways that you would want us to honor? This is your land. You're, you're still the host of this land, the steward of this land. So how can I, as somebody who now lives here, how can I honor your ways, right? Or just supporting indigenous um, organizations that are there on the land that we get to live on. So there are lots of ways to do a land acknowledgement that needs to stop, that needs to go beyond just our words. Um, and that's a big practice of Ahimsa too. And of course, then we could talk about veganism and all of these things, not harming animals, um, being a vegan also brings less harm to the planet, buying sustainably, but, but also because capitalism does this funky thing where they like to greenwash everything, right? So it's not just buying the, the recycled version of the craft product that's still, you know, that still is causing harm to the people who are making it or the factory, the land where the factories are located. It's choosing to one demand that these corporations change, but it's also uh, choosing to support companies who are wholly sustainable or at least more sustainable um, than those who just greenwash certain things and charge you a buck 50 more for that greenwashed packaging. Right. Which mm -hmm. usually is no much, it's not much more than what their, whatever their standard item is too. So the practice of Ahimsa is a really, really big deal for those of us who really want to practice yoga off the mat. Ahimsa also goes inward though, right? It's not harming ourselves. It's noticing when our mind starts to go to that place of I'm not worthy. Um, I'm not good enough. I'm not, you know, smart enough, whatever it is, that's harm, eating disorders, self-harming in a very physical way, um, toxic relationships, not being able to set boundaries. There are many ways in which we harm ourselves. And as we heal, as yoga allows us to heal this relationship with ourselves, I think we can start to see that more. Um, and so then we can take that practice of ahimsa a little more internally. Which brings me to that second point that I mentioned at the very beginning of this long run-on sentence, um, which is, you know, obviously bhakti yoga is the, the path that I'm most drawn to. And one of the things with bhakti yoga is that we get to see the divine mother living in and as all, including earth mother herself, but including you, including me, including George Floyd, um, but also including those that, that we don't want to stand up for and take a stand for, the, the people who have harmed us, right? When we can start to see the Divine Mother or Great Spirit living as ourselves and as our cats and as that mouse and as the fly and as everything, then Ahimsa will become more natural. So I think the two kind of go together. As we develop our relationship with great spirit, whatever, whomever that is for us, even if it's just this idea of universal consciousness, then ahimsa is a natural byproduct. Because if we really see God in and as all, we're not going to want to harm anything out of that love, right? Out of the bhakti, out of the devotion. So I hope that made sense. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, I was thinking that we live in a society that precisely uh, promotes the opposite. It promotes mm -hmm. self-harm. It promotes behaviors, these go, 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 these busyness, these status-seeking, results-driven, you know, individuals. It promotes the opposite of what you're talking about. And it's, it's a challenge, definitely. It is. So. Yeah. 
And and I think that goes back to also the, you know, in indigenous communities, we're talking about decolonizing your mind. And a lot of that is, it, it, it is very much the colonizer mindset, right? Me first, I'm going to take your land, I'm going to take your house, I'm going to take your, me, me, me. Indigenous cultures globally, not just here on Turtle Island or what we call North America, but globally, indigenous cultures are about that community. In India, it's all about community and family, right? Here in the States, indigenous cultures, uh, what we now call the United States, um, very much family oriented. In fact, the chief, the leader of, you know, each nation, each tribe, their sole duty was to serve, to make sure that that community was safe. It wasn't about exaltation of the one but about the well-being of all, um, including the animals on the land and the plants and the trees on the land and the, even the stones, like the, we call them stone people. They're not just rocks, right? So it's, um, yeah, um, and there there are many ways that we can, I think, again, Ahimsa is just sort of the foundation for coming back to this place of, um, and it's not, there's a fine line, though, and I think, um that it's important to be aware of too. There's a fine line between kind of being the martyr and truly living in a way that is, because um, being the martyr isn't practicing ahimsa, right? If we're just not going to have any boundaries, not take care of ourselves and what was me, yeah. sacrifice all the time, right? That's not practicing ahimsa, especially for ourselves, but it's also not going to benefit anybody else. We can still have boundaries, right? And we can still take care of ourselves and honor the divinity in ourselves as we are, how is this going to benefit the, the communal good of my family, of my community, of my temple, of, you know, whatever our community is that we're working with at the time. Mm-hmm. Totally. I know um, a lot of spiritual people and uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, plant medicine here is really common. I come from Spain, so it was not that common when come from at all mm-hmm. and then I came here in California and there was these like uh, people advocating for plant medicine mm-hmm. and um, sustainable <laughs> choices yes where these plant medicines come from yeah so it's kind of a challenge definitely to practice ahimsa which is a spiritual practice still um, act upon this self-centered absolutely well and the other thing that kind of they kind of go hand in hand right with the colonizer mindset that we talked about and capitalism and and they really do play off of each other it's so let's imagine uh somebody goes to a an ayahuasca ceremony right the plant medicine that's such a big deal here and they are of european descent um and they go and they love it and then they decide they're going to teach it and they're going to steal that medicine not just the plant but steal the teachings and capitalize on it and that's what we see happening a lot. And that's why I stepped back from yoga for, for a little while, because I wanted to really make sure that as a yoga teacher, what's appropriate for me to earn a living with, right? Where's the reciprocity okay without turning it into, I never want to capitalize my spiritual practice. Um, and it, we see that, I'm so glad you mentioned that, because it's true, we see it all over the place. Like people will take one experience from another culture and turn it into, you know, a financial abundance for themselves. <laughs> and it's not fair to the culture, to the plants, to the people that they're teaching, because those people also deserve to get the authentic teaching from the indigenous elders that should be teaching whatever the medicine is. Because plant medicine can be very dangerous. The thing about plants in indigenous cultures, again, what we believe is, 
if you really honor the plant and you honor the elders that teach of the plant medicine, then the plant will be your ally. But if you dishonor that plant, it's not going to, she's not going to be your ally. And that's what a lot of people don't understand. There's a, a disconnect because the, the plant is just a tool for them. The plant's not its own being, right? But it, in our teachings, we know that the plants are, they themselves, their own being. The smoke itself is sacred. Like there's so much more that goes into it than just pay me your money, take this medicine, go vomit. Wow. Didn't you have a cool experience? <laughs> Or that's in an, I mean, I don't really know because I've never done it, but <laughs> that's kind of what it sounds like to me. Yeah. And that's, that's not to diminish anything because I know that there is sacred tradition there, of course, but I think that it's just been watered down. Yeah. And stolen. <laughs> yeah. And, and this is against like one of the principles of yoga. And you actually mentioned back to yoga, which is mm -hmm. the path that resonates with you the most. And for those who, don't know um <laughs> it was introduced thousands of years ago by rishis of india uh, with the intention of bringing us closer to harmony to peace to union with the mm -hmm. divine as you were saying and they were um on multiple layers like physical mental emotional uh that make up um the the emotional realm mm -hmm. of the human mind and we see emotional realm as sacred as the essence of, of back to yoga is surrender offering this self to the great ocean of yeah. pure consciousness it opens up the door to feelings we lead with our hearts we sing dance uh, play music write poetry right uh, yes. even cook all is a part of uh, our dialogue with the divine mm -hmm. as you were saying And you also mentioned another practice of um, bhakti, which is uh, kirtan, which is chanting the names um, of yes. mantras or gods and goddesses as we channel these um, emotions in a healing way and, and connect to God. And when singing um, your praise for God, we mean open our hearts and create this connection to the divine or at the very least create a positive feeling in your heart mm -hmm. right and this is possible thanks to the sound of the vibration if i'm not wrong that allows yes. us to, to access deeper states of consciousness and therefore heal our bodies by harmonizing the physical body and relaxing the body into a place of stillness and i would like to ask you when did your relationship with kiritan started And why would you <laughs> recommend it? <laughs> why would you recommend it to people who are willing to uncover hidden fear, trauma, mm -hmm. resistance, or wanting to heal in general? So I grew up um, singing in uh, church, actually, way back in the day, right? So my connection to God has always been through song always. And even when I was a little girl, I'd go out in the backyard and I'd sing to the trees and the plants because that was all that was God to me when I was little and still is, you know. So my connection to God has always been through song. So in yoga teacher training, my teacher um, introduced us to Kirtan during the training. Um, and that first, the first chant that I ever learned was Maha Mantra, Hare Krishna. And um, I was just, I was I didn't even know what to do. I was beside myself with joy of like, oh, I can sing to God again because I, I had to leave the church for several reasons. I, I came out as gay. Um, I, I'm you know, well, bisexual. I came out as queer. 
a two spirit. And, um, I had, a, I just couldn't get in line with their philosophies anymore. And as I was digging into my indigeneity, it just didn't jive with Christianity. So I had a big falling out with the church, which means I lost my relationship with God, which was probably the most painful thing that I've experienced. So teacher training, chanting the mantra, all of a sudden I had permission to sing to God again, which is my door, my direct path to her. Um, so we're, we were chanting and, you know, we all had our little instruments and we're clapping and just, it, it was like ecstatic. It was amazing. Um, so when I've been able to lead Kirtan since, it's, it's so cool to get to see people get into that space you know like there, there's a lot of stuff around kirtan western kirtan i'm not going to get into that because for me personally right now i just i need to focus on the joy of it <laughs> um we've talked a lot about colonization and appropriation so i think uh, we can leave that there but for kirtan <laughs> singing to god chanting the names of god because that's the thing is when you're chanting kali's name she's not separate from that so we're not singing about kali we are literally singing her name. We're singing her presence into that room in that moment as we're chanting her name or Durga or Krishna or Shiva or Hanuman, right? Sitaram, whomever, we're, whatever name we're singing, again, we're not singing about them. We're singing them. We are, we're raising their vibration in and through our own bodies, which is where they dwell anyway, and into the physical space where we're practicing. And it's kind of magical when you think about it that way. Um, of course, there's a lot of science coming out about sound healing and the vibrations like you were mentioning earlier. And depending on what key you're playing it in, it's going to affect your heart or different parts of the body, which is all super fascinating. But the fact that we get to sing God's presence into the room. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> but what's really what's really fascinating to me is I used to lead kirtans all the time. And um, I remember when students or when participants would come up afterward and they'd say, you know, I'm a Christian and I feel so much closer to Jesus after singing Om Namah Shivaya. Who saw that one coming? That's, that's great. That, that's when you get to see that God is not limited to name or form, but we can sing her presence and, and invite her to come and be manifest and her presence to be felt amongst us, whether we're practicing at home or in a group. And it's, yeah, you got me started on Kirtan. I could go Beautiful. on forever. <laughs> I don't even know I, I answered it. your question. Yes, you did. I love it. I love it. Yeah, it's so beautiful. <laughs> Is Kirtan part of uh, what you offer in your conscious trauma immersions? Because I know that you teach mindfulness and yes. uh, mindfulness tools and that facilitate uh, this healing um, beyond the mat that we were mm -hmm. talking as guided meditation, journaling, and Kirtan is part of, of this? Yes, it definitely is. So every, every class, every session I start, we always begin with a chant. Um, if the person that I'm working with wants more Kirtan, then we'll, we'll do, because when I do a, a private session, the, the beautiful thing about that is I can totally uh, custom mold it to whatever the person needs. Some people aren't uh, the, the bhakti is not their thing so they they don't want that and that's okay and we don't have to do it but i have a couple of students that we do 10 minutes of kirtan at the end of their session every time um and i have some that just i've had some where they we just get together and we just chant the whole time so it, it just depends but it's definitely one of the um one of the practices that that is available um 
but th but then I, I do again I haven't since obviously since the COVID stuff has um, the lockdowns started but um, I do offer public kirtans as well where we come together I'm kind of getting away from that model of selling tickets so people will come and see me sing because that's not there are no stars in kirtan like I don't know where we got this idea from mm -hmm. um, so, so now the emphasis is to keep them more communal, like, hey, everybody, bring your instruments, let's come, let's get in a circle, we'll make a little altar in the middle, let's just chant. Um, so, uh, but yeah, but it's a, it's a very powerful practice, and so I do offer it to anybody who wants to uh, participate. What other practices do you do in your conscious trauma immersion? <laughs> oh, uh, so the chanting, that's a big one. Um, we, most of them, now I do offer asana in the you know, the yoga, the postural yoga in the private sessions. However, most of my students don't, they're not asana based. They come to my regular classes. <laughs> They'll start again eventually but for the asana, but the private sessions, they do more, um, but, but it is available. So we have the chanting, we have the asana. Um, so I, one of my favorite things to do with them is to guide them a guided meditation using very basic elements of somatic experiencing. So I'll take them through a guided meditation, and, but it, it'll be a, so there will be some dialogue there. So like walk them into a space and it's all very intuitive. So I can't really explain it. What do you see there? Oh, okay. how does that make you feel? And then eventually we leave the guided meditation and go more internal into what they're feeling because that usually lets them know, lets me know what's actually going on for them. And then we dialogue about it, but I'm definitely not a therapist, right? So I'm not giving them any advice or anything. Well, we'll talk about what's going on. I encourage them to feel it as much as is safe and possible for them. And we kind of work through that. We'll draw it sometimes, we'll journal it. We just process whatever emotions come up in as safe a way as we can, whether it's through a yoga posture, a chant, or some other artistic thing. Yeah, and then sometimes too, I'll share stories. Uh, I love to share stories of the Div Divine Mother. So we'll take it back to, um, I usually have them read a book called The Veiling Brilliance. By David Atakali, which is a retelling of the Devi Mahatmya, which is like the main Shakta text, or, or the, at least within the Durga camp, right? Um, Durga Ma, not Durga Dasi, <laughs> within the mother's camp. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll talk about those stories because usually they're familiar with them. So we'll talk about, you know, this thing, does it, does it feel sort of like a Mahisha sword thing? And remember how the mother brought the ego home? And, and we'll, so I just sort of, braid in all of these different elements and then sometimes there's indigenous things like we'll talk about the medicine wheel and the four directions and mm -hmm. um so I, I know it sounds very vague it's just it's all so intuitive and i'm i'm very blessed and fortunate to have many practices both from being hindu and from being indigenous um many practices available so i just kind of like have like this bag of practices available and we dive into the session and I just pull out what's needed as it's needed, you know, but those are the, those are the basic elements. Yeah. yeah. No, and it, it's all related <laughs> to, to sharing this experience of the divine, infinite, yes. infinite love um, that we've been calling God, but you call yeah. her grace. Uh, yes. She has a feminine presence um, mm -hmm. for you. And for, for us to practice from this place, uh, we have to, let go of tension judgments limitations yes. so i guess what you do at the end of the day is opening up this space for them to embrace their embodied um in other words surrender 
Yeah. I, yes. That's surrender that's is a great surrender. word. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us how we imbue all of our actions with this attitude of love, reverence, and devotion. How we surrender and open ourselves to receive grace. Ooh, that's a loaded one. <laughs> Years of therapy. <laughs> that can help. Um, well, I think it, it all just kind of goes back to, you know, my sole intention with all of this. And that is get people, especially trauma survivors who have been so disconnected from themselves for so long. And there's a lot of shame and all of that stuff there, right? Get us connected to us, to that, that inner voice, that intuition, learn to listen to that. That will lead us to God. Once we repair that relationship with self, right? It says that self, lowercase s self, will turn into that uppercase, will reveal itself, right? Not turn into, will reveal itself as uppercase self, the self of all self, that sat chit anand. Um, and all of our scriptures say that the divine mother, the divine grace, whatever divine is, resides in the hridaya of our own hearts, right? She's seated on the lotus of our own hearts. So it's there, but we've got to get ourselves in tune with our hearts enough to where we can start to hear her still small voice from within. So I think whatever we're doing, take the time to really lean inward. We're, we're such a society that's based on external. Look at how cool I am. Look at how well I can sing kirtan. Look at how many headstands I can do. Have fun with it. There's not, please have joy. Like we, joy is our true nature. However, if we're expending all of our energy externally, we've saved nothing for ourselves. So take it in, take it in. And as we learn to listen to that and move a little more slowly, Again, that ahimsa, that connection, that surrender is going to be a natural byproduct. Because I think the hardest thing for us to surrender to is not God. I mean, we have fanatics all over the world that are surrendering to God, right? People that are causing great harm in the name of God. So surrendering to an idea of something outside of ourselves that we can use as a scapegoat is not challenging. But surrendering to an idea of divinity within ourselves, that's scary, and that's much harder. So as we surrender and bow to our own hearts and to the divinity that so lovingly and willingly and gracefully resides there, then we start to see that divinity everywhere else. And the natural byproduct is to surrender and to bow and to honor to the land and to the animals and to the beings that we get to share this land with. We just start to see her in everything. There's really no easy answer. We use all of these tools, right? We use the chanting and we use the asana. Um, we use all of the tools that we can to get to the place of surrender, but it's really bottom line is about who you are when you're alone in your room, what thoughts you're having, where the grace is, where the ahimsa is, letting go of the judgments about whatever we're feeling, right? Surrendering to it, accepting all of it. There's nothing bad or wrong about us. It's just coming to a place of understanding that all of our experiences, all of our traumas have made us who we are. And now we get to decide what we're going to do with it. Like we're taking the pen back, right, from all of the people that have been authoring our stories, our parents and our teachers and the government and whomever else. We are taking the pen back and we're saying, no, I'm writing my own story now. And that's really what that surrender is. I'm writing my own story now through grace and through love and through a recognition of my own divinity and the divinity of those around me. Yeah. The word surrender sometimes is associated with victim, which is quite mm -hmm. the opposite. If you surrender to this acceptance that you're talking and you, you realize that you have the power to make your own choices. So you're Absolutely. not longer the victim. 
And, you yeah. know, there's this sometimes um, rejection of the word surrender or, you know, don't give up. And especially in our society, <laughs> when I'm like, give up, give up what? Give right. up what? Yeah, you are committed in growing and evolving in looking inwards in healing. But yeah. if something doesn't serve you, if something, give it up. Yeah. yeah surrender it surrender, like that exactly. that's very empowering absolutely and that's a that's a great way to put it we live in such a hustle society but all of all of this hustling does is it just keeps us distracted you know it's the chitta and the vritta and it keeps us super distracted from going inward which is where the real surrender happens sometimes with um working with trauma survivors though the word surrender can be one of those nervous system activating triggering things so then we play around with language. I'm like, okay, well, what will we talk about surrendering to God? What are we saying? We're not saying throw up the white flag, take me captive. I'm, I'm your, you know, I'll do whatever you want. It's, it's very different than that. It's so, you know, playing around with language. Well, what is surrender really? It's choosing trust. It's okay. Don't use the word surrender. I'm choosing to trust. I'm choosing to trust myself. I'm choosing to trust Ma. I'm choosing to trust the universe. I'm choosing to trust. I'm choosing to trust my partner. I'm choosing to trust the cosmos, whatever it is that we're, we're great spirit, right? So if you don't like the word surrender, fine, throw it away. It's just a word. <laughs> what is the essence of the word? Take that, you know, extract it, and then put it into a language that feels a little safer. It's okay for us to do that. That's an act of surrender right there. We're choosing something. I can trust this set of words more readily than I can this right now. And it's, it's totally okay. In fact, it can be a lot of fun to play around with language, I think. <laughs> because I we, that. Right? Because otherwise we just sort of take for granted. I'm surrender. I'm surrender. Well, what does that actually mean? Yeah. Oh, that means I'm trusting. That means I'm putting in this application for this house that I really want. But if I don't get it, that means that mother gave it to another one of her children because that's who she intended it for. And that means she has something better suited for me. Exactly. That's surrender. That takes a lot of strength. But really, the bottom line is trust, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not easy. It's certainly not giving up. <laughs> no, because we want to control everything. Mm -hmm. That's another thing. <laughs> yeah. I used to have a teacher that would say, you know, we use this word, let it go. Nobody knows what that means. How about just let it be, right? Like Paul McCartney had it right so many years ago. Just let it, that, that's kind of what that surrender is and that trust Just here's my intention. I'm doing everything I can to, you know, to play, to put my actions behind this intention. But at the end of the day, all I can do is let it be. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was, that was deep. <laughs> <laughs> deep thoughts with Dorga Dossi. Uh, I wanted also to ask you about um, mm -hmm. or to talk about the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women movement mm. because I know that you somehow are involved and there's not enough information out there for people to know Ooh. what is happening there's with not. Native people, mm -hmm. especially the women. And to 2016, the National Crime Information Center has reported 5,712 cases of missing American Indian and Alaska Native women and girls. Four out of five Indigenous women have experienced violence, and more than a half Indigenous women experience sexual violence, and more than half Indigenous women have been physically abused by their intimate partners. And yeah, I wanted to especially because we're talking about yoga, I would mm -hmm. like to know your input in how practicing this devoted yoga lifestyle can enhance 
our sense of social responsibility and why yeah. it is important for some. Again, it goes back to that. It goes back to ahimsa. It goes back to asteya, right? Asteya is the practice of non of non stealing. Stealing. Um, and it also goes back to you know one of the, for whatever reason everyone likes to quote the Bhagavad Gita in, in yoga. It's it's a it's a great text. There are lots of great texts. So, um, but you know Krishna talks about see me in all. Uh, in the Devi Mahatmya, Ma says the same thing. Or in the Devi Bhagavatam, excuse me, Ma says the same thing. See me and I am everything. Uh, in the Mahatmya, she says, I, I am alone in this world. It's, everything is me. Um, so with the, the missing and murdered indigenous women, um, we've got a couple of things going on, right? Again, this is the, the rightful stewards of this land, the indigenous people that have been brutalized sent, since... Columbus thought he discovered the land that was already well inhabited and well loved. Um, the statistics that you shared are probably only about um, half of the, only about half has been recorded, right? So double that, um, at least as far as how many have been taken or are missing. Most of them don't come home. Um, and what's happening is these pipelines are going in and they set up man camps where the pipelines are going in. They're almost always on or near a reservation. These men that are staying at the camps are responsible for the women. And it's not just women now. It's women. It's children as young as like three years old. Women, children, two spirits, all of our relatives um, are, are coming up missing and most often murdered or just never found. Um, and there is a direct link between the missing and murdered indigenous people and the, the pipelines and the man camps that are being set up. So if we want to protect the indigenous women and indigenous people in general, it goes back to protecting the land, which means we've got to stop with the pipelines and the oil drilling and all of these stuff. We have to demand that we use renewable energy and that we stop raping mother earth. She gives us everything we need. She gives us sunlight. She gives us wind. She gives us solar. She gives us everything that we need. So for us to dig into the earth to take, that, that's, that's not okay. And it's causing harm on so many levels. As practitioners of yoga, those of us who claim to want to live this practice off the mat, we have no choice but to defend our mother. Because here's the thing. If we don't have an earth, why are we doing all the handstands anyway? Why are we doing all the yoga trying to be healthy? It's not going to make a bit of difference if our earth is destroyed. She'll be able to come back, but humanity will not, right? She's much stronger than we give her credit for. So as yogis, true yogis, true people who want to live this practice to the best of our ability, we have got to start putting others' needs before our wants. We have to start looking at... Um, ways that we can be more conservative with resources, ways that we can use renewable resources, ways that we can invite sustainability into every aspect of our lives. It's going to cost more, so we're going to have to buy less, but we need to do that anyway, because women and kids are losing their lives over this, and not just here. Think about the situation in China with the workers who are trying to make all of the ch cheap stuff that we're buying on Amazon. And don't even get me started with Jeff Bezos because he. We should all be boycotting Amazon. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, it's just it, if we're gonna purchase something, know where it's coming from. 
know that it wasn't a child in a sweatshop that made it or a woman about to give birth who's, you know, being forced into labor. Like, let, let's just take a moment and and buy from companies that are at least trying to lessen their carbon footprint and be uh, more sustainable, not only with the earth, but also with human rights. Just take a minute, research it. We, I mean, we spend all of our time on Instagram and Facebook anyway. We can take a few minutes to figure out where we're sourcing our stuff, right? All of that is tied into the MMIW because it's our greed for more, more, more that is costing these women their lives as it has been for over 500 years now. Yeah. Yeah. It's this take instead of give. We are here to serve. We're here to give out of this love, this divine love rather than to this human. Absolutely. And I would say anybody who wants to know more information, obviously we need, most people don't know anything about this. And there are a lot of people that are chanting indigenous chants and wanting to wear their headdresses, which is, by the way, not okay for anybody to do, um, (laughs) that are wanting to appropriate indigenous culture that have no idea that there's this MMIW situation going on. So um, I would encourage anybody who's interested to look at MMIWUSA.org for more information. Um, They're a really cool organization, too, because they actually help families with funeral costs and things like this so they're like on the ground and then uh the nirwc national indigenous resource for women council um they they are more of an advocacy with government stuff so you can check out their site as well for more information mm-hmm. or if anybody can just give me a call and I'll, i'm happy to talk about it <laughs> <laughs> right we we haven't been taught everything we're yeah. talking right um if we look though on our on the yoga community, uh, it's still based on consumer and material culture, as you were saying. It's defined by this neo-colonialist mm-hmm. appropriation of an ancient heritage, yeah. and taking into consideration that yoga is the fourth fastest-growing industry in the world. <laughs> wow. With yoga free... should not be an industry yoga industry is like exactly, oxymoronic exactly. should not be a thing <laughs> exactly so with 300 million people practicing it can be a tool uh, to practice social justice uh, since yoga nourishes the self-realization and respect and all these values and what i mean by that is that it teaches us how to truly yeah. serve oneself and or others not from yeah. a place of who we have been or we who we might become but rather the realization of who we are in our shared humanity and yes. yet yet despite yoga is thought in terms of class race and ability yes. sometimes it's it's not accessible or inclusive and respectful of the diversity and dignity of each student sometimes um and it becomes then another you know immoral from my perspective yeah but it can be a a catalyst for social justice an opportunity for students to the explorations of uh, yoga life skills and tools uh, for this personal well-being or to experience themselves as worthy as you were saying of their own advocacy and um, empowerment and creating this sense of belonging so how do we it's difficult to approach how to <laughs> the yoga industry, right? In, in these catalysts or what are your comments on that? 
Wow. So many comments on that. <laughs> Firstly, if, th if three, would you say 3 million people are practicing yoga? 300 million. Three, geez. Sweet mother. If 300 million people globally were actually practicing yoga, we wouldn't have to defend black lives. It would be a non-issue. We wouldn't have to be defending the earth. It would be a non-issue. So the fact that 300 million people are doing asana and they're calling it yoga is in and of itself problematic. It's alarming. <laughs> it's alarming. It's been commodified. And it, 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 everything you said is, is correct. It has become classist and racist and homophobic and, uh, and all of these things. So, so how do we, it kind of goes back to that decolonization mindset. How do we decolonize yoga? We have to, this, this is not jive in a capitalist society, but we have to decapitalize it. We have to, we have to make yoga less about profits and more about the well-being of people, not just white cis straight people, people, all people. Um, and we need to have accessibility in different ways, whether it's chair yoga or yoga for inner city kids, because again, yoga is potentially trauma prevention. If we take yoga into these inner city schools where these kids are so disadvantaged because society has tried to forget about them or scapegoat them, we take yoga into the, the black and the brown kids, right? And give it to them. That is quite potentially trauma prevention because we're allowing those kids a space of quiet where they can get to know themselves and realize that they have choice. They can trust themselves and they have choice and they don't have to bow to a system who is, that has been so harmful and so wretched to them. But it's going to take all of us standing behind them and amplifying their voices and lifting them up too so that they can, so that all of us are in this together, right? We have to decenter white people you know, uh, yoga, you look up yoga on Google, I do a Google search on yoga, you're going to see skinny white women. We got to stop that narrative. Yoga journal needs to get their self themselves in check with, with the way that they're advertising yoga too, right? So how do we do that, right? Grassroots, how do we do that on the ground? If we're yoga teachers, we put our money where our mouth is. We leave the bougie, the, the, the bougie yoga studios. We take yoga to the street. If that means that we don't get paid for it, then we don't get paid for it. Because what is yoga really? It's not a commodification. So we take it out of the bougie studios in the white rich areas. And we take it to the inner city. We take it to the schools. We take it to the city parks. We take it to wherever we have to take it so that we can have some melanation in our classes, so that we can have some diversity, so that we can have some queer folks and some two-spirit folks. And it's, it's going to be up to us because the yoga industry is just that. It's an industry. They don't want to change. They want to capitalize on it. We as yoga, true yoga practitioners, we have to be the ones that are like, nope, enough is enough. I'm not going to charge people $25 for a class when most people can't afford that. I'm going to take myself and put myself in a situation. And, and we do that respectfully by going and talking to the leaders in communities, right? We don't just like, as a, as a fair skinned person or as a white person, we don't go in and insist that I'm here. Like we don't want white saviorism too. So we need to be very aware of that also. 
but we go in and we talk to the elders of the community, the leaders of the community. I would like to offer this or I would like to train somebody to offer it. I would like to teach somebody to teach yoga or whatever that's going to look like for that community. Talk about surrender and humbling ourselves. That's what we have to do. We have to take ourselves off of the pedestal of being a yoga teacher and think of ourselves as being um, almost a servant to yoga. a devotee of yoga, somebody who's going to take this message out and, and share it with love and with gratitude and with humility, rather than to make ourselves some kind of rock star, you know? Yeah. yeah, it's our responsibility. It is our responsibility. And then eventually, maybe the industry will follow suit. But unfortunately, there are enough capitalists to keep it going for, <laughs> for quite a while, right? Mm-hmm. And now that doesn't mean that if you're devoting your life to teaching yoga, that you can't make a living course we all have to earn a living um but to uh to want nothing but name and fame from yoga is is stealing the practice from its culture and stealing the practice from people who are who deserve to have access to it so it's not practicing a staya therefore it's not real yoga yeah yeah yeah, that's all. I said. <laughs> <laughs> now, because if I start, if I continue talking, I could I talk know. about alignment also with, but I don't want to go there uh, as a psychologist. Well, because right, because we're so focused on that physical alignment, like get that toe in check when you're in your warrior two, that we're not thinking about that internal alignment, which is really more. Exactly. It's like you're, you're studying <laughs> yoga precisely um, to spread, to share certain values, but then you're not practicing them. Right. So it's, it doesn't even make sense in my exactly. head. So <laughs> never mind. I, I have a, a, a one last question for sure. you, which is uh, where can people find you or in what ways can people work with you? Um, right now you can find me online. So my website is dorgadasi.com. Um, and I'm, I'm on the interwebs as well, social media. Um, I'm not currently teaching regularly in a studio, kind of for all of the reasons we've discussed here today, but also because my partner and I are getting ready to move. Um, mm-hmm. so, um, so I will be back in a studio soon and I'll have all that information posted or maybe not a studio. I will be teaching public classes again soon and I'll have all that information um, posted when it's available. But for now, yeah, people can find me on my website and I'm happy to do um, personal sessions or small group sessions. Like if people want to, I don't know, have a bridal party that's yoga centered, I'll come and do that, whatever. Uh, (laughs) um, So yeah, so I have private sessions available for groups or individuals, um, either on Zoom or in person if they're local. Mm -hmm. I will leave all the links on the show notes anyway. Thank you. (laughs) Well, and that's all. Thanks so, so much for having this conversation with me and sharing your perspective. And I appreciate your time and devotion. Oh, thank you. It is truly such an honor. And hopefully we can get together and do some kirtan very soon. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Yes, chokmashki. That's how we say thank you in Chickasaw. Thank you so much. And of Mm -hmm. course, Jai. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want more content like this, make sure to subscribe so you get notified when new episodes are released. You can find me on Instagram at Inspira Los Angeles for more free and insightful information about mindfulness, ecology, and ancient wisdom. If you want to dig deeper, you can also check out my website, inspiralosangeles.com. There's free content that you can download so you can have some keys on how to live life from a more integrated and aligned space. Much love.